This is a simple thing that I can do. I mean, if we look at in contrast, when we had the flu pandemic, you know, 100 years ago, we had leadership at the top of our country that called these victory masks. And it was a badge of honor to put a mask on your face. And by the way, folks, those masks back then were nowhere near as comfortable or cool as the ones we have now. I mean, you want to get like bedazzled mask now or your favorite football team, whatever. I mean, sky's the limit, you know, and, and they're comfortable and they work. But the point is, is that the people who were the outliers back then were the ones who did not wear the mask. They were the ones who really stood out as people who weren't sort of rowing in the same direction of humanity. But the thing that made that time so different was that we had leadership that made it important. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Cole Baker Bagwell. Cole's the founder and chief kindness officer at Cool Audrey. Cool Audrey is a consulting firm that teaches companies how to put kindness to work in business. And in our conversation, we talk about how people and business have changed and that if you want to thrive in the 21st century, then you have to build a new core competency, kindness, based on awareness and meaningful connection, and like I said, the shared commitment to kindness. And Cole and I dive into why kindness isn't an intangible soft skill, but it's something that we quantified on the impact it has on people and business outcomes. So we dig into how kindness plays out in a sales environment and how kindness is interwoven into the ways buyers experience you and your company. And we'll also get into why a shared commitment to show up selflessly and to openly help others develop the trust and collaboration required to create and achieve great things. So it's a really fun conversation. We get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Cole, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Cole, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you today. So where have you been hiding out during the pandemic? Oh, gosh, I've been hiding out in our home in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Um, Very grateful to be here. And yeah, been, I've been hiding out with my husband, Andrew, and our two pups. Nice name, Andrew. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a nice name. <laughs> and, um, and we've just been, you know, we've been hanging out and super fortunate because we've got a big backyard and walkable city and we've got loads of masks in hand. So it's, it's, it's been just actually pretty, pretty good. How oh, about good. you? How about you? Where, where have you been hiding out? Oh, we spent uh, the first three months in Manhattan, and then we've spent time since then in San Diego. So, wow, <laughs> that's really different. Yeah, well, we're we're very fortunate. We've um, <laughs> able to go back and forth between the two. So, um, my wife, my wife had to be in New York for work, and then uh, they finally decided that they could handle all that remotely. So, we decamped. Um, out to California. So it's been, yeah, nice to have a ready access to the outdoors, I guess. Absolutely. And and the sunshine and the warmer weather. So that's, that's great. I, well, actually I, the cooler weather during the summer, that was the real bonus. So oh, yeah, sure. if, I, right. if I can avoid New York in the summer, I'll go to great lengths to do that. So <laughs> it um, does get a little stuffy. <laughs> yeah. Probably not too dissimilar from Raleigh as a matter of fact. So nope. Um, all right. So Big question for you right off the bat. What's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? Well, uh, I think the biggest lesson I've learned about myself is that I have too many shoes. And I know that sounds like a surface. So, so I'm, I'm going to give you two answers, right? I'll give you the well, no, surface. I like, that. I like that one. So how did that come about? I mean, well, how did you discover this that you didn't discover it before? Um. So quite honestly, before, you know, my, my life before COVID, I was, I was traveling. I was actually mm-hmm. in Manhattan, you know, three to four days a week. I was in Toronto. I was um, in various cities uh, working. And so, you know, I, I, had a, I had shoes that I took with me to work. And the funny thing is during the pandemic, you know, of course, we're not really going many places. And because of that, I was, um, I guess, about three months ago, I said, I'm going to clean the closet out and you know, it's just time and whatever I'm not using, I'm going to give it away. And because I was basically wearing, you know, 
five black shirts every week and the same, you know, couple pairs of jeans. And yeah, that was really yeah, all. Uniform, right? Yeah, the uniform, right? And and my husband would, would joke, he was like, wow, we have five black shirts again this week. Look at that. So um, I started going through my closet. And that's my uniform, by the way. Typically, oh, yeah? a, a black shirt and jeans, yes. Well, it's typically mine as well. But but the problem was, is I was wearing like the same five black t-shirts over the week. I mean, not even pulling out like a blouse or a sweater. So it, there was perspective there. And as I began looking through the shoes, I thought, oh my gosh, what, who bought, who bought these shoes in here? <laughs> so, so that is, um, that's something I've learned is that I definitely am all set on shoes and clothing and, um, and, and that's been great because then, you know, I've been able to, um, do other things with the money I would have spent on shoes and clothing, like donate it, donate that money to good causes. So that's, yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's been pretty cool. All right. Well, cool. Uh, what's, it's a very unique answer to that question that I've asked many people. So that's, I like it. So, uh, you've got a business called cool Audrey. I do. And you're not Audrey. So I'm not. So explain the genesis of the name and what you do. Okay. So this is where the people who are, you know, already maybe thinking that kindness doesn't fit in business. I'm going to ask them to hang out a little while longer because this answer um, speaks to the soul side of my being. So, so what happened um, was a few years ago when I felt the pull to, to leave the the role that I, the, you know, the role that I had in corporate America, which was in sales and strategy, I had to come up with a name for the company. And, and you know how this works, right? You know, website name for the company, uh-huh. trademark that all of those good things. And there, there's a process you have to go through to actually make all those pieces click together. And they, and they weren't clicking as the point. And not only that, but I reached this point where I really could not think of like the creative side of my brain had sort of taken a vacation. And so my husband and I went to dinner. We, we walked from our home to dinner one night and I always have, you know, a journal of some sort that I carry with me. And in this particular journal that I had with me that night, it sounds very morbid, but, um, I had the little tag from my great aunt's ashes from when she was cremated. So my great aunt, her name was Mary Lucy. She was, she was born in 1916. She was, you know, living during the heyday of Audrey Hepburn. The unique, the unique thing about her is that she was, you know, she total glam girl, like Audrey Hepburn. She was a fierce businesswoman, but she was also fiercely kind. Mm-hmm. And so I was, this is the only explanation I have, right? So I'm, I'm holding the book to my chest and I'm crying and I don't have any ideas. The corporate world has taken it away from me, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden this little, this little seed was planted in my brain and I blurted it out and I said, cool, Audrey. And my husband, Andrew said, who is she? And I said, she's the name of the company. And he said, where did that come from? I said, I have no idea. It just literally, there it was. And so we, on the bench we were sitting on, we looked up the domain, it was available and here we are. So, so she's, she's, she's everything and nothing at the same time, right? She represents, I tell people that she is some, she quite literally chose me and I just breathe life into her. Um, so that's who well, cool Audrey and, is and that's where she came from. Well, I like that. I mean, to me, Audrey Hepburn is the epitome of cool. I mean, I, it, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. Any movie she's in, I, I watch. Um, so yeah, my wife, same thing. So, um, yeah, what's the, what's the one, the one with Gary, Cary Grant, uh, charade. I haven't I think, seen, yeah. I haven't yeah. seen all of her movies. I've, I've yeah. seen, I've seen many of them, but I think that's one I might've missed. So I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. A classic, uh, okay. sort of thriller. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. All right. So, um, we're gonna talk about kindness. I love this topic. Let's yeah, do it. Well, this is your topics. Yes. Yeah, this so, is my topic. And so, We'll start with a quote from from your website. Yes. So you wrote, that's a quote, decades ago, it was in vogue for business people to quote the art of war. Competitors were enemies and executives were generals, presumably leading their troops into battle. And that approach to business may have made sense then, but times have changed. People have changed too. And if you want to build a thriving 21st century company, you have to build a new foundation, a human foundation based on awareness meaningful connection and a shared commitment to kindness to do no harm. 
All right, so I want to sort of go through that. So, so why do you believe kindness is so important? Kindness is kindness is uh, is a quality that is born from compassion and intention. And you know, I think that a lot of folks think about kindness, and unfortunately, it's been compartmentalized in the bucket of soft skills, which is mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm working working to change that. Someone right. told me yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's good. Um, so, so kindness to me is more than just the surface stuff. I mean, those things are all lovely to buy flowers and pay it forward and donate. I mean, that's all definitely a form of kindness. But as I think about kindness. I really go back to a definition that I learned. So I've been a yogi for 26 years and I go back to the first ethical rule of yogis, which Mm -hmm. is called, it's it's called ahimsa and it means do no harm, compassion, nonviolence, do no harm. So for me, when I talk about kindness, that is the highest form of kindness. And, you know, for, for anyone that just considers that for a few moments, if, if you thought about the profound power that that one commitment holds mm-hmm. for really transforming each of us and the world at large, it, it really becomes quite self-explanatory. You know, that, that one commitment in thought, word, and action to do no harm, it means that, you know, we're showing up and we're taking care of one another. It means that we're showing up with good intention. It means that we're showing up and we're bringing soul into business, which absolutely needs to be there or really what's the point. Um, and kindness is that thing that allows us to be, it allows us to be direct. It allows us to be transparent, to be firm when we need to be without, you know, doing harm. And from a research standpoint, it's been proven at an organizational level that kindness actually helps people develop trust and which allows them to collaborate and then create new things together. So my question is, why isn't kindness a main staple in business? <laughs> Seems pretty obvious to me. Right. So I guess one question, sort of, I'll just jump right into it here, it's, is, but does that mean that we're all sort of schizophrenic? I mean, because, you know, at the same time, and I agree, by the way, I, I believe in the importance of kindness and and yet we see in public discourse a mm-hmm. coarsening and, a, if anything, a reduction of kindness, uh, right, as, as, as you know, our leaders have, have sowed more divisiveness into, the, yep. into our conversation and, you know, instilling fear of others and mm-hmm. just plain lying, right? So, mm-hmm. so, yet we look in the world and we say, okay, well, we've got this country that's, you know, divided pretty evenly in many respects is yet these same people come together in a workplace with these different points of view where publicly they may support somebody who's anything but kind, but then you get in the workplaces. How does that translate back into the workplace? How many people have to work together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's actually, that's, that's such an awesome question. And, and I love that you asked me. So thank you. So first off, um, we do, if, if you, it depends on which lens you look through um, from a worldview standpoint, as you consider kindness. So I've actually seen, I, I completely concur with every single thing you're saying about the state of the country and the leadership, the divisiveness, et cetera. Um, as we think about that, that is, those actions are coming from ego. They are coming from fear, from insecurity, from, you know, the places where the, the worst part of us is allowed to surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're all sort of um, self-preservation mechanisms. And that's been something really important for me to remember because otherwise it just would take me down and make me so angry. So that's that's what I'll say about that. The other side of things, though, is during COVID especially, I've actually seen evidence of humanity rising. And I think really as we have been forced into our you know isolation at mm-hmm. home, that we've begun to realize how important we are to one another and how much we need one another and the power that compassion, the, the wellspring of kindness, the, the power that that holds for us to really create solutions. Uh, so, so I'm seeing a lot of evidence of humanity rising as well. As far as the part of your question around, you know, are we schizophrenic? How are we able to, you know, protest and yell at each other's faces in the street, you know, disagree and then show up and work together? What I'll tell you is that all that stuff, all that energy that we hold, because we are the same self, whether we are home, on the streets, protesting, in workplace, whatever, same self across the board. We may behave a little bit differently, 
But whatever's inside, whatever is is driving your reality is going to surface at work as well. And so if you have this ego and this fear and this uncertainty that is, you know, creating division in the world at large that we're all seeing on, you know, media 24-7 if you chose to, to pay attention, um, that division still exists. And so whether it's a thought, whether it's a word, whether it's a decision that's being made, those decisions are going to be made from that place because that becomes the mindset of that human being. So it's not that we're schizophrenic. It just may, it may surface a little bit differently, but it's all still the same. And, is, and that's, that's, that's really, scary. Yeah, <laughs> think about it. yeah, it is. It is kind of scary. And it's especially scary now because man, before COVID, you know, we had, I, I was studying the stress levels, burnout levels, anxiety levels, voluntary turnover levels of folks. And, you know, it's astounding. I mean, $322 billion globally is what burnout was costing us before COVID. Now you take these folks who have extra layers of challenge. I mean, real challenges, right? So, Uh so much larger than we had before. And now they're being forced to stay at home and sanctuaries have become everything. But now we've got, maybe some of us have little people, we have dogs, we have others who are there or worse yet, we're alone. And we've got to figure out how to navigate that. Now we have all this extra noise and tension from the outside world, the uncertainty about where we're going to go. It's tough to make business deals right now too, right? Because maybe you have a client you've never met in person. All of that is now amplified. So this is really an even more important time to be checking in and talking about this. I mean, from not just for business, but for really like a mental health and overall, overall well-being standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not well in body, mind, and soul, you know, as ourselves in our normal lives, personal lives, the chances that we're going to show up and be well in any other facet of our life is pretty slim. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I agree. And that's, this is why I started when I was going through your stuff and reading and, and you've written some really powerful things. It's, it's just like, yeah, we just have this, this, uh, I don't know, that's, we're out of sync in so many respects. And it's like, maybe, Maybe you know the force for kindness actually maybe originates at work um, and then extends outward from there, perhaps as opposed to starting elsewhere and coming into work. I don't know. I mean, it's it's um, it's fascinating when you think about it because again, given how polarized we are these days. So, I so I actually talk- think I actually think on that front, I'm going to offer you a thought on that. So I sure. think that we have to start with ourselves. So before COVID. You know, I, I was traveling, um, you know, three to four days a week for work and I would sit in airports and restaurants and lines and whatever. And I would, I would look around me and we were so disconnected from ourselves and we were so terribly disconnected from one another. I mean, people's mm-hmm. faces were in their sure. screens, headphones on everything. Right. So, um, and, and if you looked at a lot of the habits that were contributing to the stress and anxiety that people were feeling, the depression, which had a ripple effect on all the other health conditions as well, and performance at work and personal mm-hmm. lives and you know violence and everything else. If you really look at that, a lot of people were failing to be kind to themselves. And what I mean by that is they weren't getting enough rest. They weren't um, you know nourishing themselves properly, right, right. Uh, their bodies, right? They were on autopilot largely. And so And the judgment that was coming in from a self standpoint was so huge. And I think that what I understand and what I have lived and experienced personally is that if you, if you are not being kind to yourself, if you are not doing the things to take care of yourself, showing yourself that, that commitment of doing no harm, then you become, you become whatever you have um, created, right? Whatever you're taking in is what you become. And then that is what you're taking into the rest of the world. So I actually think as we think about my call for people to do no harm, to extend that highest form of kindness, it starts with the self. Mm -hmm. And then, and then once you cultivate that inside, I call it unfolding, you're then able to take that out and share that with everyone else around you. And then that's really where, the snowball, that beautiful snowball begins to happen of the collective consciousness, but we have to start with ourselves first. Yeah. I mean, I, I, so as I was thinking through this and looking at your pledge to do no harm and so on is, is, and think about what you just said, actually, is, is, (laughs) I, I believe that 
you know, one of the issues that we're dealing with with sure show this this idea about kindness or lack of kindness do no harm is something as simple in the midst of this pandemic as people wearing a mask. Yes. Yep. Right? Wearing yeah. a mask is yep. fundamentally an act of kindness toward others. Absolutely. I mean, it may be uncomfortable for you, but you do it because of the common good. Yes. And and this is this is such a hard message to get across because people have you know political objections and you know doubts about uh, <laughs> COVID even existing yada yada yada. But but even just setting aside that is is maybe maybe not a full believer. Maybe it is uncomfortable. While you have political objections, so what? It's just an act of kindness for others. And it's it seems an, like we're, our inability to grasp that part of it, for me, is the most frustrating part. Totally. I mean, that that is that is a form of doing no harm of, and it is a soul thing. It is a mind thing. They are not separate things. It is, this is a simple thing that I can do. I mean, I mean if we look at, in contrast, you know, when we had the flu pandemic, you know, 100 years ago, mm-hmm. we had leadership at the top of our country that called these victory masks. And it was a badge of honor to put a mask on your face. And by the way, folks, those masks back then were nowhere near as comfortable or cool as the ones we have now. I mean, you want to get like bedazzled mask now or your favorite football team, whatever. I mean, sky's the limit, you know, and, and they're comfortable and they, and they work. But, but the point is, is that the people who, who were the outliers back then were the ones who did not wear the mask. They were the ones who who really stood out as people who weren't sort of rowing in the same direction of humanity. And, but the thing that made that time so different was that we had leadership that made it important. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and it's just so funny, like the power, the power of that, of that office, like the power that office holds in the platform of that office, that, that it could, it could convince people to, to really turn away from from the human side of this whole you know this whole pandemic that we're facing. Well, I think it's um, a, a unifier. That's that's the part that I think we're opportunity missed is that yep. is yes, we're worried. We do have these divisions and some profound policy differences in the country, and that's fine. You know, that's that's what we do. That's part of our democracy. Mm-hmm. But this inability to sort of rally around and be rallied around this idea of just just a simple gesture we can all take. That's not fraught with political meaning. It's just it's an act of kindness. It's an act of kindness to yourself and to others. Um, well, totally. And and the thing that's and gotten we bring in the, the country way of, together. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and the thing that the thing that gets in the way is is what I call the evil three. It's ego, it's agenda, and it's bias. And those things have gotten in the way here. And when we operate from that place of ego, agenda, and bias, we're not ever going to be able to show up in the space to make that make that commitment to do no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because by the way, you can still disagree and com- and take the pledge to do no harm. Right. Um, I, I wrote, I wrote a letter to president elect Biden um, and, you know, he's not responded yet, but I'm still hopeful. So <laughs> I, I, so got a lot on his plate, I think right now. He, he's got a little bit to deal with right now. Exactly. But I, but I felt so compelled to write in this letter because as I consider his position, and as you know, I consider all of the the series of challenges that that we're facing right now and for the foreseeable future, you know, it becomes really overwhelming to try to understand how do I fix all of these things, right? Because there's so many steps that have to happen for each and every one of those things. Um, and so as I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it, um, I certainly think that a good place to start would be with this one simple pledge to do no harm in mm-hmm. every single thing that we do. Because what I know is that until you can bring people together, there's no way that we can move forward in business and life and politics, whatever it is. Right. So, so that's what I wrote to him about, about maybe you just start there with well, that I mean, one. Yeah. With that one commitment. Right. And you yeah. ask others around you what, whatever side of the fence they're on to make that one commitment before you start any conversation and see see where that lands for you. So I'm hopeful. I actually think there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. Well, you have to let me know if you get a response. <laughs> I will. I totally will. <laughs> I totally will. I expect right. it might be some time, but <laughs> sure. I had to do it. Yeah. No, it's it's impressive you did. So so let's talk about this idea of, of kindness and, and so on in a sales context because you spend sure. time in sales and we have yeah. a sales audience. 
So mm-hmm. you start with this concept of do no harm. Now, when I was first reading that, I was thinking, well, this sounds sort of vaguely like something that Google put on their website uh, for years, um, <laughs> which they've since removed. Uh, but for you, in a sales context, what is harm? Wow. Where do I start with that question? Um, there are so many different harmful motions in sales. Mm. Um, we'll start with a couple of popular ones. Okay. I'm going to start with a couple, couple popular ones. So, uh, so, so one that I'll use as an example is, you know, going in and pushing your own agenda. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're representing a company and you have products or services to sell, okay, well, it's already implied that you're going to be hopeful that you get those products and services into the hands of your buyer. Right. But going in and pushing your own agenda and thinking, and, and this happens a lot, thinking about my quota, you know, my, mm-hmm. my, you know, my forecast, my commission, my this, my that, you're in that place of I, you're in that place of ego. It's a form of doing no harm because what, ha- or doing harm, doing right. harm, because what happens is that when you're showing up in that place, you are you are already showing up to serve self instead of to serve others and right. and so i think that's one prime example and it's a really easy thing to change um i think the another really good example is this just it just drove me crazy when i was in sales this this game of cat and mouse that happens um between sales folks and either client or procurement partner which is also their client mm-hmm. you know it just drove me nuts this whole this whole, you know, posturing that happened. And it's, it's also a form of doing harm of, well, I'm going to offer you this price, but you know, when we get a month out to the end of quarter, I'm going to offer you this price. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not the real thing. And, but I'm going to try to get this, you know, this thing in the door. And it, it just, it's so much nonsense and so much noise. And there's such an easy way to correct that, to build human connection, to build understanding that will get you to potentially a much higher place more revenue, greater partnership, deeper partnership, more loyalty to your company than you would have had otherwise. And it gets you out of the vendor bucket and puts you into the partner bucket. Right. So it, it just was confounding to me, Andy, how, like why people went through these silly emotions. I mean, I, I remember I was in, I was in a meeting one time. Well, we're trained to. <laughs> I know. Right. It's, it's, it's well. just, it just, it, it, it was so, that was the part that was really, really hard for me, but it was also my opportunity across the landscape of my sales career. And I, and, and I really, I really excelled, I think because of that. Um, but I'll tell you, it just drove me so crazy to, to, to hear even the guidance that, that sales reps were given from leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter what it takes. You get it in there. You know, this is, this is a battle and, the, even the words that are used in oh, sure. sales, oh my gosh, the words that are used drove yeah. me, drove me, you know, to such a sad place. Resources, sellers, producers, FTEs, you know, we're going to backfill this person. I was like, oh my gosh, make it stop, <laughs> make it stop right now. So, so well, those, yeah. are, those are just two, those are just two of the things that are, that, that, you know, come, come to mind. I mean, there are people who, who are flat out dishonest when they go into these relationships. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I think that, so here, here, let me give my take on this is I think that, that the problem emanates from the fact that the fundamental culture in sales is based on persuasion. This mm-hmm. idea of persuading somebody to do something, mm-hmm. which is sort of a mindset that tells by says that sellers have to, Pretty much coerce the buyers into buying the product. I mean, persuasion is a coercive, <laughs> a coercive. Exactly, motion. it sure is. And that's been at the heart of sales methodologies and sales culture and so on since modern selling started. You know, hundred plus years ago. Um, and to your point, it's it's not about serving the buyer or helping the buyer achieve what they need to achieve. It's about getting what you want and what you need. Yep. And we seem like we've really had a hard time getting past that in sales. You know, we've had, well, it's probably 30 years since people start talking about, you know, customer-centric selling and buyer-centric selling and so on and so forth. And the needle hasn't moved really. In fact, I would argue that it's gotten worse in regard to being less buyer-centric than it was even 20 years ago. And it's like, yeah, we're missing a real opportunity, but we're going to be stuck in this sort of trap until we reorient ourselves about what it is we're trying to accomplish. 
Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. And I think it's, it's, it's really, it's really just, um, a series of habits that have, that have been created, you know, since the art of war, uh, which, you know, I put on my website, right. It's, it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's a series of habits and choices that spring from those habits and decisions that spring from those habits. And in, it becomes a culture and their the expectations flow from that place. And, and it's really then up to leadership of all of these companies to, to take a different approach uh, not only to their clients, but to their employees and to really pay attention to, to the soul in business. I mean, my God, at the end of the day, people do business with other people. You know, if I had something to like, I, you know, the last few years of my career, I was working with um, the banks on wall street mm-hmm. and I never used to drive my sales leadership crazy because they would say, well, how are your quota numbers coming? How is your forecast? I said, I have no idea. They would say, why not? I said, because I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on working with cultivating these relationships that, you know, will will help me serve these people who are entrusting their business potentially to me and to this company. And and so it used to drive them mad, but every single year I was the top for every single thing that I did. And I truly believe it's because I I didn't, I was focused on the right things. I wasn't focused on forecast, quota, commission. I never cared about it. I knew that if I was showing up and I could understand who I was serving, Mm -hmm. what they needed to solve and why it mattered for them, that was my job. If I could understand those three things, then we were going to have the conversations that would lead us to a path of partnership. It was always the greatest compliment to me in the world when I was called a partner instead of a vendor because I really knew I had achieved something. So, but but even still, you know, even you know the the some of the leadership that I worked with, and they were they were lovely people, but they were their optics were were not aligned with my optics. And, um, well, and yeah. that made it, re- that made it really difficult. So, you know, for all the leaders of the companies out there, they have to decide, they have to decide what they value and they have to decide that focusing on the human side of business doesn't make them weak. It makes them wise and it makes their company strong. And until they do that, um, until they break the cycle of those habits, because there's a whole lot of neuroscience that goes along with that too, until they break that cycle and they begin standing up very courageously for something different, it will persist. That is well, just yeah. the simple fact. Yeah. I mean, I find it very interesting that because I've been going back and I've been doing research in terms of the sales process, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, there's this sort of conceit going along around younger generations of sellers that somehow there's a, a modern sales method that's somehow superior to what, what preceded it. And, but when you look at the fundamental sales processes that people lay out and I'll say this, you know, you've got five steps in your sales process or 10 or whatever, and they're all laid out in CRM systems today, but previously before CRM systems, they're written down somewhere, but I've gone back and done research <laughs> into it. Yeah. And they're virtually unchanged from 60 years ago to today, <laughs> technology notwithstanding. Yeah. So then the conversation is, well, hey, the buyers have changed significantly. Buyer behavior has changed significantly. Right. So I look at these these linear staged-based sales processes, which I said are fundamentally unchanged and decades over decades, despite all the technology we have surrounding it. And but then you look at the buyer behavior, it definitely has changed. And Gartner published this famous chart. I love talking about the buyer journey, which is mm-hmm. this it's a flow chart, but basically it looks like a handful of cooked spaghetti was thrown against the wall. <laughs> and so you have these, these linear s- sales processes that are specifically designed to persuade a buyer to buy your product. To your point, mm. you show up with an agenda to persuade them to buy your product. Mm. Yet what the Gartner chart shows is that, well, they've got different steps they go through the buyer at the core of their sort of messy chart, these sort of four or five jobs that buyers do, you can never find a sales process that aligns to the jobs the buyers have to do. Mm-hmm. And we wonder why we have a problem. Exactly. We wonder why we have a problem. And this has persisted for decades. <laughs> yeah. And so we go through and re- basically rewrite and re- retrain sellers, rewrite the same sales books over and over again about you know, being more buyer-centric, blah, 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 blah. And we don't do a goddamn thing about it. 
because people are still so focused on we have to persuade these people to buy our product mm. as opposed to we have to go help them solve a problem. And if we you know, take your perspective on it, which is sort of mirrored the way I went through sales, I was selling very large, complex stuff worth millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, I always thought about is how do I help somebody solve a problem? And if I focused on that, I knew yeah. I was going to hit my numbers. I knew I was going to make the money I wanted to make, you know, get the career advancement I wanted. All that came true. But start from perspective of service. And, and that is, you know, an act of kindness to the buyer. If for no other reason than, you know, the research shows <laughs> that, and there's just a book written about it uh, called The Catalyst by Jonah Berger, about how every person in the world has this inbuilt resistance to being persuaded. Right. So I find it ironic that we continue to persist in in training sellers and having our go-to-market be focused on a behavior that universally 100% of our customers hate. They do hate it. And I, I am t- in total agreement with you. And, you know, I think it was funny. Um, it was really funny. So so in the last part of my my sales career, I was working, I worked for a really exciting little company called Ansible. And it was a startup. I was number 23 there. I was hired as their enterprise um, you know, sales executive to mm-hmm. manage all of our big stuff. And then we were doing so well, we were picked up by Red Hat. And I remember this, you know, and that was like a sh- being shell-shocked. I mean, Red Hat is a fine company. It was great and all of that. But, but we were 50 little people by that time with a really big aspiration. And by the way, every single one of us was hired for kindness <laughs> first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, our, our ethos was, it was so great that we took out into the world. But, but I remember uh, one of the a sales leader at Red Hat um, said to me as we were, you know, post-acquisition, he said, I'm going to invite you to participate in the Red Hat sales training. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not interested. I didn't sign up for this. And he said, well, what do you mean you didn't sign up for this? This is the way we do it. And I said, then you can, you can fire me. Because I'm not doing this. I, you know, I've been in sales a long time. Uh, I'm not going to go through the methodology or whatever it is that you're trying to teach people. Um, I don't need a product dump. I came to do one thing, and that was represent Ansible. And if that's changed, then I'll give you my notice. Because what I what I've realized is that in every single sales training and methodology and everything else, one of the fundamental pieces that's missing is is the the place where awareness belongs. And I think that, you know, when we can begin, and this is again, you've got to focus on the human side of the equation and not right. just the revenues and the, you know, the output that's going to be created. Because by the way, you know as well as I do, Andy, revenue, market share, brand loyalty, all created by people. That doesn't happen by itself. So right. and those things are created and they're determined by the level of deep relationship that you have with the clients who entrust you with their business. This is the, like the easiest thing in the whole world for me. And I can't understand why this isn't the focus for every single sales organization out there. I mean, this is, this is where the beauty starts right because here. Because they just give it lip service. I know yeah, they told me to. But in, increasingly I can, I won't name <laughs> names here, but if you're listening, you know who you are. People <laughs> who are writing, you know, in the echo chamber of LinkedIn and other places that wow. relationships are, unimportant in sales. Oh my gosh. That wow. there's no need to be likable. Wow. 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 And this is there are people that are listening to this. And it's oh like Oh my gosh. <laughs> well they're probably gonna be out of a job. Out soon after you and I record this. Oh these people are yeah gathering an audience. Because I think what this idea of connecting with another human being is scary to most people. Well, right? I think and we've it, become, yeah, and, and and not to cut you off there, but but I, it's not only scary. We've become very comfortable with surface relationships. We've become yes. very comfortable with like the, you know, whatever we anecdotally see on a screen, right? We or the few things that come across in a tweet or whatever. Like we're happy with the surface stuff. Like that's, but that we've been conditioned to become comfortable with that. It's well, a choice. It's so a many habit. of our channels of communication with people these days are so superficial. So, yes, agree. Yeah. So it's, but it's, it's this idea. And I think part of it is that it stems from this idea, and I think you sort of walk around it in, in your work is is this idea of using the word relationship. 
Mm-hmm. So I've, I've sort of defaulted. I just call it connection, human connection, mm-hmm. because too many people hear relationship and think, well, I don't need to be friends with that person. It's like, you do understand what a relationship is, don't you? The way two or things operate <laughs> together, exactly. that's a relationship. It has nothing to do with big friends. It and has yet, to do with understanding. It has, has to do with understanding. It has to do with understanding. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I, how I can you to, have that? How can you have that if you don't have connection with someone? How can you understand them? Well, if you I don't. Are, Right, so I ask people the question. I said, so what's what's the perhaps the biggest source of value you can bring to your buyer is to make them feel understood. Well, to actually <sighs> un- and to actually understand them. Yeah, that it's, a, is the- it's a basic human desire. People want to feel understood. And also when they're trying to solve a problem, for them to feel that they you understand their problem both on a business level and a personal level and what it means for the company, what it means for them. That's huge. You want to put yourself in a prime competitive position? Take the time to really connect and understand the buyer. Well, absolutely. And you know what, Andy? It's not just nice. It's their responsibility. I mean, like in my in my last role that I had, you know, my job was to go in and um, help companies figure out how they could bring automation in to you know, their infrastructure to their networks to create fluidity, you know, increase productivity, security, mm-hmm. all of those things. If I, I looked at it as my fundamental responsibility to understand their world, I, and to understand the challenges that they had and the customers who relied on them and what were the real concerns that they had and the real breaking points for them. And that was my responsibility because they were entrusting business to my care, to the care of my company, who was making a promise to them that we were going to make all of those things better. So it wasn't just that it was going to make them feel good. I, I looked at it as irresponsible for me to do anything less. And my teams that I worked with, same way. The, all the people that worked with me on the teams, I said, listen, our first, our primary goal is to understand. And second goal, second mission that we had to accomplish was the people that, you know, all the cross-functional team members that were showing up, you know, that had been in their bubbles working, quote unquote, owning their own slice of heaven inside of these banks, they had to now come together in a different way, perhaps for the first time. So I told my team, I said, if we're not able to help them connect, and we have to be the catalyst for that connection, Mm -hmm. we can't help if we cannot get them in the same room together, and come to a common understanding, they will never, ever be able to make the magic happened with this technology that they need to make. And that is our responsibility. So I think like that, that is a a posture that every single sales executive who is worth their salt, every sales leader who is worth their salt, they need to make it their responsibility to understand and to cultivate that connection, that relationship, tapping into that human side. And if they're not, they're really, really doing themselves and their clients a huge disservice. Yeah, I mean, so this gets back to this disconnect with the process that sellers follow versus the <laughs> the journey that buyers go on. And I posted this on LinkedIn earlier this week. I, I'd said, you know, buyers go on a journey, sellers follow a process. Mm. There's the mm. problem, right? Right there. It's just that perspective. But to your point about understanding is, is the first step on the buyer's journey is to come to a full understanding of the problem that they're trying to solve. Exactly. And the full understanding of the outcomes they can achieve by solving it. Mm-hmm. Where's that step sit on a, a sales process? It doesn't. And by the way, <laughs> wasn't there a statistic, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to get the number a little wrong, but I think I'm in the right ballpark. Wasn't it somewhere in the neighborhood of like 70 two or 3% of buyers had already made a lot of those fundamental decisions prior to ever meeting the quote unquote reps that are walking through the door. I mean, they're, they're doing more homework now than they've done before. Sure. But it doesn't um, mean they've, no, they've, it doesn't mean it's full fledged, but they've, but right, they've gotten they've done homework, sure. Exactly. Sure, but, but they haven't made the decision. That's no, no. I, I, there's a reason buyers talk to sellers and it's not because they want to talk to a salesperson. I've yet to meet a, a customer. I've had great relationships with customers. None of them want to talk to a salesperson. They talk to you because they need to. 
Well, my clients actually enjoyed talking with me. Well, I'm sure they, they did, but no, no, honestly, Andy, they did. They really did. And you know, sure. even the even the toughest ones, even the folks in procurement who But in general, they don't want to. No one sits there and says, Look, I want to talk to a salesperson. Well, they didn't want to talk I right. mean But if they, you're willing to come in and if you're able to come in and help them, then yes, they want to talk sure. to Sure. Well, sure, sure. I but but I, I will tell you, I think more than more than um, anything else. The greatest compliment that I received, uh, there was a fellow who was a CIO that I had worked with for about a year and a half. And he said to me one day out of the blue, he was so fantastic, very, very tough guy. He said, you know what, Cole? He said, have you ever thought about going into sales? And I, and I, and okay, so this was a funny conversation. And I said, well, that's sort of a funny thing to say. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about it. He said, well, you know, you know so much about the product and, you know, you've been able to guide us along the way and help these teams. And I think, I think you might be kind of good at it. I said, what is it that you think I do? He said, well, you're our partner. You know, you're the one that comes in here and you're, you're helping us, you know, talk through these problems and, and you're helping us, you know, kind of figure out a solution. And I said, you know what, you've just given me, I had tears rolling down my face. I said, you've given me the biggest compliment mm -hmm. you could possibly give me because I am your sales executive. And it was, and, and I'm not tooting my own horn, but I am telling you, I mean, maybe a little bit I am. You can, you're on the show. That's okay. You, you can toot your own horn. Well, I'm, I, I don't, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I will tell you that every single time, I mean, anybody listening could go and contact, you know, the people that I worked with, uh, the clients that I worked with, and they would tell you this absolutely to this day, uh, when I was in sales that yes, the thing that brought us together was their need to solve a problem. But the thing that kept us in touch was the fact that I built those relationships with them and helped them succeed. And so, you know, they, on some a, of them, many of them, level. I know on a human level, on the most human level, and I was honest right. with them and I, you know, and I really did my best, um, at every single turn to show up for them. And you know what? They knew that. And some of them were a little shocked, I think at first, or, you know, what is it that you're angling for? I'm not angling for anything. I just want to help you solve a problem. Let's talk through this. Like, let's figure out the next step together. And you know what? I rarely, we rarely were talking about products. It took a long while. I mean, I could assume that that's kind of what got me in the door. They had done some research sure. and they knew, right. But, um, but that was never the first point of conversation. And I, and, and they really appreciated that because I think it was, it was a different experience for them. Well, I think it's, and you talk about this with kindness in terms of, you know, changing the way that you know, we interact with the world around us and show up and mm -hmm. relate to each other is this mm -hmm. idea of transparency mm -hmm. is one that sellers really struggle with, which is it's not uncommon for a seller to maybe open a conversation saying, yeah, we're here to help. But then it gets to the end of the month and it's like, what can we do to get you to close this week? Right. And yeah. you're suddenly not there to help anymore. You're, it becomes very clear what your agenda is, mm -hmm. and we understand the, you know, the the needs of business to to you know bring in revenue and hit certain numbers. Mm -hmm. But there's a way to do it, mm -hmm. and it doesn't rely on waiting to the last week of the month. Uh, sometimes it's better to let the business fall to the next week. Oh, the or next the month. next quarter, or the yeah. next quarter, absolutely. And you know what? That happened Especially for many, a long term relationship happened many times to me. I mean, Andy, I was working on deals that took, you know sometimes two or three years to, to come mm -hmm, because they were mm -hmm. so complex and they had so many moving parts and, and it was, it was great. You know, the, and, it, but every year, somehow every year, uh, my, my teams were successful. My clients were successful and we, we made it happen, but it was never because we were focused on that. And the, the few people who would join my team and say, well, Cole, we've got to close this. We've got to close this. I said, um, I need you to focus on, on, the next step in understanding this problem that we're solving, we're going to get there if the fit is right. If we do a good job and if we can come to a common understanding, we're going to get there. But it, to your point, it might roll into the next quarter. And if it does, that's okay. Because that's not what's driving this relationship right now. What's driving the relationship is that we have established trust, mutual trust with one another. And we are, we are, you know, moving, moving, moving towards something together. Yeah. So well, so that's where we are. Yeah. And I, I I have a perspective I share with people, which is that, you know, just a different way of thinking about what you're trying to do when you meet with a customer, you know, virtually or in person, is you really have four tasks. 
deepen the connection, discover more, understand more, give something of value. And if you could just do those four things every time you interact with a buyer, those four simple things, deepen the connection, discover more, understand more, give value, you're going to succeed. That's pretty mm-hmm. simple. Yeah. And, and that word value is one of those funny words because it's relative. You know, but what may be valuable to you is not valuable to them. So it's really that understanding is the piece that has to come they, well, first. You can right. understand what would be valuable, right? Well, because they have to acknowledge that it's valuable. Yes. And that's, and so, that's, that's what I... Yeah, so no, the caveat totally. or the addition I put onto everything we talked about, we got to deliver value. I said, well, yeah, but it has to be acknowledged by the buyer that's valuable to them. You're right. What's valuable to them? And then, so if, if you begin to go backwards now from that place and you think about, well, what does it take to execute successfully when we talk about human connection and understanding? Um, what does it talk about to, like, what do we, what do we need to think about as we consider what's valuable to the other person? We have to have a certain level of awareness. And um, in a culture that is focused on doing over being, a culture that focuses on do more, do more, produce more, produce more, you're never going to get there. You have to slow down long enough to cultivate awareness first of self and of others before you can move to that place where you can develop all of the, all, you know, all of those other things that you've mentioned and you know that are really um, great points. You have to cultivate a sense of awareness first and that gets you it's that's the foundation that Mm -hmm. will enable you to move forward successfully and execute on all of those other all of those other things yeah yeah i think um it was my dan pinker someone's done some work talking about being attuned to the buyer and i think sort of the awareness serve i think it's a similar similar usage uh you have to be attuned to these individuals that you're connected with Mm -hmm. so yeah for sure all right. Well, Cole, we've run out of time, but this has been a great conversation. So um, thank you for joining me. And if people want to connect with you or learn more about what you're doing, how can they do that? They can go to my website, which is coolaudrey.com. And they can also find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I will be talking a lot about soul and relationships and connection and the importance of those things on LinkedIn and doing no Good. harm. Uh, yeah. Under Cole Baker Bagwell. So they can find me there. Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much and look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Andy. It was great talking with you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm ever so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Cole Baker-Bagwell, for sharing her wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.